Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where your game transportation needs are such that people randomly send you boxes full of IKEA bags. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you tonight? Always wonderful. How are you? I'm fantastic. Jake, did you send me IKEA bags? No, I actually have them. I was going to bring them to Wednesday, but I wasn't able to go last week, so I will bring them this week. I have three extra ones. All for you. Well, I don't know that I need them anymore because somebody sent me four bags from Ikea. I was very confused because I got a delivery message from Ikea distribution Hmm. when I didn't order anything from Ikea and a box showed up today and there were four Ikea bags in there. That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I don't even know if I know your address well enough to do that. I was that was certainly not me, but I guess I'll take credit for it. I told the world you needed them. But wasn't you. It must be J-Mac. I'm not sure. There it is. Thanks, anonymous Ikea bag sender. That was great. <laughs> so, Jake, before we rip into it tonight, and uh, we got a great episode for you, we had a friend of the show contact us taking umbrage with some of our mogul scale ratings. Yes. Which one is that? And what did they take umbrage with? He said, you know, I'm loving this mogul scale item of categorizing the difficulty of games, but there is no way on the planet that High Frontier is a 5e because at the end of the day, it's deep sea adventure on steroids. Hmm. Deep space adventure. Deep space. Yeah, because he said, at the end of the day, you're seeing how deep you can dive and do you come back with stuff or do you run out of oxygen? He said, it's really the same game. And, you know, he's not wrong. Well, that is interesting. We made the mogul scale just as kind of a way to talk about games. Then it became something that people liked. So we kept on doing it. Maybe we should figure out a way for other people to contribute to it or something. It could be more of a large format way for people to discuss games. I don't know if you have computers or skills or interest in that, reach out. Because I think it'd be fun to actually have more of a community score on top of our score on these things. Are we changing High Frontier though, Mark? Well, I think we do need to revisit that. He made a pretty strong comment that it's a very tactical game that really you're just trying to make a move. There's kind of no long term, real deep strategy to it that you're 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 just trying to go out in space and grab some stuff and come back. And so his comment was that it really shouldn't be a five E. He was fine with the five because it's a very tweaky, twiddly game. But he felt that the strategic level was probably more on like the C level or something like that. C or D level rather than the E level for sure. And yeah, I think he's probably right. I think adding a lot of the expansions in that probably up the amplitude of the strategy. But at its base level, I think we got to maybe consider that base high frontier is a 4C and full blast high frontier is a 5D. That sound more appropriate? Honestly, it's been so long since I've played. I haven't even thought about it. Whatever you think is right here, Mark, I delegate it completely to you and wash my hands of the entire issue. So if you get hate mails from you, not not to me. <laughs> okay, we'll administratively change that. Base High Frontier is going to a 4C. Full Blast High Frontier is going to a 5D. And if you want to discuss it with me and tell me how I'm wrong about both of those things, uh, bring it on. All right. So, well, that's wonderful, Mark. Let's talk about some more games because we actually have less admin than we usually do in most of these episodes. For sure. We're going to get right after it and talk about some games today. And uh, I think I'm going to lead this charge with a game that I played a couple of weeks ago. I got in a couple times. It was a game that I was super excited to get from Gen Con and get to the table because I love the authors. I love its uh, provenance, shall we say. And I think it's beautiful, too. I love the artists, everything about it. And that game is Black Angel by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, Alain Orban, published by Pearl Games. Why was I so interested in this? Well, I'm a huge fan of the game Twa. I always have been, love the game, and Black Angel was marketed as being Twa.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0. 2.0. 
Love it. Yeah, it's the second response to that idea of dice drafting. You know, it's already a really brilliant framework on that. They roped in artist Ian O'Toole, made it a very striking looking game, made it a big game about space because, you know, anytime you take a game and make it space, it's better. Space! There's already a pretty good template and footprint out for doing that, looking at games like Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, where they took a great game, spaced it, and made it better. And I was really hoping that that was going to happen with Black Angel. And that wasn't my experience. It's interesting because I don't think I avoided this game, but I definitely was not always trying to play this. So this came out a couple of times, once at a Wednesday, and there was an option of just like, oh, yeah, we're playing Black Angel. And there's discussion of maybe I was going to run another table's worth of games or maybe somebody else was. And I kind of just went, eh, I'm not really that interested in Black Angel. So it's interesting that you are not as sweet on it as you once were. So maybe we should take a moment and just explain in brief what the game is about. The game itself is where you're flying the Black Angel. You've got a ship that's going off as a generation ship because Earth has been ruined and all the great nations have banded together to build this Black Angel to go recolonize elsewhere in the solar system. But it's going to be a trip of, you know, centuries. And so it really it's just AIs transporting the genetic material of Earth elsewhere. No nation trusts each other enough to actually let anybody by themselves fly the Black Angel. So a bunch of AIs were created and whichever AI did the most successful job would be the one given the job to repopulate the new planet that it's going to. So far, so great. I mean, that sounds like an awesome, really interesting theme. A lot of the underpinnings are similar to Twa, where every round you've got a group of dice that you draft, and then you use those dice to perform actions based on the number of pips on board with that. Like in Twa, there are certain enemies that are called, the I think, the Reavers or something like that, the Ray, you know, something very Firefly, that are coming back and attacking you every round that you both have to fight off and they damage your ship. And meanwhile, you're trying to reprogram your AI to be better and give you more bonuses and go out and explore planets and, and get new technology for them as you go past. Also, so far, so good. The way that the game is timed, I also find to be really neat and really uh, there's this track that's kind of chevron shaped that every round you pull one off the back and you put it to the front and you back everything up and certain actions are triggered by that motion as well. So think of it like a conveyor belt where you're constantly getting closer to the planet Spes, which is your destination. Different planets are coming into focus as you're going by them, and you suddenly see this point where the planet's getting closer and closer and closer, and that's, you know, the, the doom of the end of the game coming up quickly. Again, love that concept. It's so visual. It's so obvious when the end of the game is coming. The challenge with the game, though, is honestly, it's not a bad game. It's a pretty good game. We enjoyed it, uh, some more than others, and I played it twice in short succession, and again, everybody thought it was a good game. But it's not Twa. It touches a lot of the same buttons, and it's not as good of a game as Twa. It doesn't have the tension, I didn't think. It was a little more kind of wide open and sandboxy than Twa, so there was a lot of the, huh, not sure what to do right now. I suppose I'll do this, because that's what's available to me. And just, I didn't find a lot of the decisions to be just overridingly interesting to do. There was a lot of turns where there wasn't that much interesting to do. It's like, well, I'll run my AI and I'll get some stuff. And then I'll, uh, well, I suppose I'll go over and colonize that uh, planet up ahead there. Your turn. Yeah, <laughs> which is so funny because if you compare that to what you're actually doing in Twa thematically, all you're doing is sending like a little worker somewhere and buying some stuff. But the game makes it so tight and you feel like you're really doing something. There's all these things you want to do, but you don't have enough time. It's bad in a worker placement or that kind of style action selection game if it's just like you kind of don't care what you do on your turn. 
Yeah, and there are ways you can, uh, as a player, accelerate the flow of the game to try to end it quickly before somebody can sort of get their thing going. But again, it's it's indirect enough you'd have to spend an inordinate amount of energy to actually do that. So we also internally talk, me and you often, about why do we waste time playing games that we know are sevens when we could be playing nines? And I think this is probably one of the examples of it. This game's good. It's a good game. I could totally see people really loving and falling falling in love with it or... I could see why people would do it. I haven't played it, but why are we wasting our time on that when we know there's a better game than it that kind of scratches a lot of the same itches? Yeah, there's enough games that I play after a couple of times where I sit back and I can't wait to play it again, where I'm just I'm excited about getting it back to the table. And and Jake, how much have I been uh, suggesting to you in the last couple of weeks to play Black Angel? Zero, which is funny because I thought I was being a dick and completely just like not allowing you to get this game played by avoiding it. But <laughs> turns out there had been an internal struggle, so it didn't have to take me kind of being apathetic about the game to avoid it. Well, and God knows we had ex- we had opportunities in the past couple of weeks. We certainly did. Well, we bid you adieu, Black Angel. Hopefully you can find a better home and maybe an expansion to fix it in the future. What would you get on the mogul scale? On the mogul scale, I'm going to chalk this one up as a, uh, it's a 3C. It's probably a heavy 3. I mean, there is a little bit of extra rule going on there. I don't know that it escalates all the way to a 4C, but it's uh, it's on the heavier side of 3C. Awesome. Moving to kind of lighter stuff um, from our big backlog of games that we've played that we haven't had a chance to talk about, I'm going to speak about a game that I was believed published in 2002. I'm speaking of Pueblo by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer and published by Ravensburger. At MogulsCon, there was a wonderful fellow, Eric Fromey, who came in and we really enjoyed playing games with him. It was the first time we had met. He's a local. He lives on the south side of the city, so right by MogulsCon, so it was Great for him to pop over. And one of the games that he brought was this Pueblo game that I've never heard of, never really even really heard its name mentioned. But it's really neat. And once it's actually on the table, you really understand why he brought it, because it has this great table presence. So what you are doing is we are building different adobe houses. I believe in New Mexico. I haven't read the rules or whatever, but we are we are a Native American tribe who are trying to be the most humble of, of architects. And so what you have is you have, imagine a two-by-two two Rubik's Cube. But remove all the colors, make them all one color, and then pull that apart evenly in half. So there's a two by one and another two by one kind of stuck together at the end, making kind of a weird V. Can you imagine that there, Mark? So far, so good. And there's a neutral colored one, and you have four of those, and there's also a player colored one, and they stick together to make little squares. And so on your turn, you are going to choose one of the squares or one of the cubes that you have, and you have to either play the colored one or the plain neutral colored one somewhere in the structure that we're building as a community. Then you have this little guy that is going around the outside, and he's going to move one through four spaces along the line on the on the outside, and he's going to peer all the way down. Whoever color that this guy can see, imagine that he's like an actual little person looking in, We'll gain victory points, but you don't want to have victory points in this game. This is golf score. Whoever has the lowest wins. And then whenever he hits these exact corners, he looks space down like a bird from the very top of the structure. And depending on how you are, you lose a certain amount of points. But I really liked it. It was a really neat game. It's one of those games that you play and you're like, this is really unlike other things that I've seen before. And I really enjoyed it. I know you saw us playing it, Mark. Did you kind of understand anything about it or you heard about this one before? No, you know, I had never heard about it before. I kind of sauntered by and said, oh, what, are you, what are you guys playing? Because it looks cool on the table with all the wooden block piled up, almost getting like a um, Medina kind of vibe about it or something yeah. like that. But they're not wood. They're kind of like thicker plasticky, but it doesn't Ow. feel plasticky of the newer things. It feels really kind of premium. I really liked it. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It looked, it looked wood just at, a, at an instant glance. And since then, actually, now that I'm aware of it, I've actually seen a number of mentions about it. So apparently I'm the ignorant one here. I, I don't know. It looked it might cool. be one of those things where you're kind of shopping for a car and then all of a sudden you always yes. see that car yeah. every single place. <laughs> but yeah, Pueblo was really fun. It had interesting decisions that were kind of unlike other games. And it was kind of the game I'd probably put it most similar to was like Climbers, but a little bit hmm. better and a little bit less brain burny. But it you it's it's a fun game where you're working together, not as a team, but against each other. And you kind of build this little structure at the end where you look down on it and say, wow, that we we built this little thing. That's kind of neat that we that, that we made this little town looking kind of uh, Adobe house kind of thing. And it was really fun. I'm going to add it to the wish list and hopefully get a copy, but it seems as if they're kind of going for expensive on BGG. So we'll see. Maybe somebody will uh, trade it to me for something relatively reasonable. Yeah, this definitely sounds like something I would like. It definitely, I think, is one. It's spatially and puzzly and kind of fun to move everything around. And it just, it's one of those games that doesn't feel like other games, which I'm always looking out for. Pueblo by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, published by Ravensburger. On the mogul scale, I'd give it a 2B. It was a fun game. Sounds great. What about you, Mark? What else have you played? Jake, you would consider me to be, generally speaking, a positive person about board games, wouldn't you? A hundred percent. You're very positive. You're actually more positive than I am. I am way more likely to rip into a game than you are. So why am I bringing the heat today? I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) Uh, All right, I'll tee it up. I'll tee it up and let you swing here because I I know you're going to have a more negative comment on this one than I am. We were recommended a number of episodes ago by a guest of ours to check out the Reiner Knizia game Blue Lagoon, which is a pure abstract with some territory control elements. Puzzly abstract. Yeah, cute theming on it, although really the theming has absolutely nothing to do with the gameplay. And I was able to pick up a copy of Blue Lagoon for, geez, $15 at a closeout sale at a local game store. And for $15 based on a friend's recommendation, hey, how can you possibly go wrong with that? The rules were a three-minute teach, and I brought it out with 30 minutes. And if I recall correctly, I uh, I may have bullied it to the table a bit because, I don't remember, I probably saved you from a play of Quacks of Quedlinburg, if I was going to be honest, Jake. Yeah, it's funny, but I don't think it was Quacks. I think it was Point Salad was maybe the other one. But yeah, it was, it was, it was <laughs> I not. I think it was. It was not. We didn't have a lot of time. I don't think I was jonesing to get anything played. It was just, let's get this played fast. The only thing was I didn't want to learn a game. Yeah, and legitimately, it was a really simple, quick teach. It was, yeah. So the idea here is that you've got a series of islands, and every turn you're either putting down a little hut or you're putting down putting down markers on it. I forget what the other ones even stand for. And you're claiming resources as you're going around there. And at the end of the day, it's a set collection game that also has an area control, who has the most of uh, islands that they've touched, and who has the most of this, that, and everything else. I think the interesting hook about it is, is that what you do in the first round affects what happens in the second round, because you have to leave yourself toeholds for the second round. The first round, you can actually place pretty abstractly. The second round, you have to build out from what you already have on there. So you're claiming territory, but if you leave yourself nothing in the second round, you're actually making a pretty uphill battle for yourself because now you have to start back in the corner, which is a pretty bad place to start. And everybody's going to grab things before you get there. I thought it was fine. Like, uh, I don't typically tend to go for pure abstract territory control games like that. So it, it was interesting. I thought it asked some interesting questions with that uh, second period restart and where you end up there. And I have to admit, I was a bit surprised at these strongly negative reactions I got from everybody else at the table. So I will say, I think this is a way better game than Point Salad, just to give this a reference. All right, I'll take that. And it's just <laughs> this is the kind of game that's not good for me. 
I don't like games where it's really open and sandboxy and it's like that weird turn thing where all you're doing on your turn is one thing. So you have to like Kirk is one thing closer to a resource than I am. He doesn't ever need to grab that resource. He can go for other things because the second that I move towards that, then he can just move towards it. And so then I have to like play into that and I have to try to make him go to two different things. It's just everything I dislike about games. This is not a game for me. On top of that, we didn't really understand how the scoring worked and I read the rules a bunch of times, even though you had taught it to us. And there was not easy to convey whether or not you can double count sets and all that stuff. And it was it was kind of frustrating in that way, too. And it has the Kinesia kind of fun scoring with a bunch of different ways to do it. He has really interesting scoring mechanisms, but this was just certainly not a game for me. And honestly, probably long term, it's not a game for me as I get into it and understand the nuances of the exactly what you talked about. The fact that you have to goad people into going for different areas so that you can end run and try to sneak in there. <sighs> Do I need to have a 20 minute game that makes my head hurt? Maybe that's what the problem is. Right. And it, I, I think it could go really long, too. And that's the issue is it's so wide open. We played with a group of people that have no analysis paralysis whatsoever. But I think this is a game that you really want to dive into and like really think and playing with people who have analysis paralysis. Like I can see this game being awful because you can literally place anywhere. There is no restraint in that first stage whatsoever. I think you have to play a boat person, but functionally you can play like anywhere and it's just wide open and it's just really not something I liked. I felt like it was half a dozen one way, half a dozen six the other, and I just wasn't really making any traction with any moves that I made. And Blue Lagoon is just ugh, not, not, not what I like. I'm not saying it's a bad game. I will go to my deathbed saying Point Salad is a bad game, but Blue Lagoon just is certainly not for me. I do think that if you were somebody that really liked the uh, the Gip games or something like that or Go or something that this would probably be a good fit for you, don't you think? Yeah, it's that kind of what you're doing on your turn, but there's different scoring after. It's more the Euro scoring of like, well, I have this region, I have territory control in this island, so I get this. I'm in all the islands, so I get this. I have these four of this different resource, so I get this. And all these different stuff. It's like, imagine what you're doing on your turn is similar to like chess or something along those lines. But what you actually score is Euro scoring of kind of point salad a little bit of points for everything. Sure. Well, I think ultimately this is a game, you know, like I said, I spent $15 on it. And the production is actually surprisingly beautiful for a little game like that. I mean, there's lots of lots of neat bits in there. I think it's one all to give a whirl with my family and see what they think of it. And, you know, nobody sticks to it. I'm not really out anything extreme and I'm sure I can trade it for something. Absolutely. So that's Blue Lagoon. What would you give it on the mogul scale, Mark? That would be a 2B on the mogul scale, I think. That's not a... I, maybe, I, would maybe, I would maybe even say this is a 1B. The scoring might kick it up to a 2B, but the game itself is a 1B. Oh yeah, it's about as easy as it comes. Play next to someone on your turn that you already have, or you need to lay a boat person anywhere, unless it's the second age, and then you have to play adjacent to someone you already have, right? That's the entire rules. That's pretty much it, yep. Yeah, so... Maybe it would be a 1B, but it feels the scoring is a little confusing, a little bit convoluted. I think a 2B is about right. Again, Blue Lagoon, Reiner Kinesia, published by Blue Orange Games. Jake, uh, pick my mood back up again, would you? Sure. Let's talk about a good game, one that I know we both like a lot and one that I've been playing the absolute crap out of if you've been following us on Instagram. I'm speaking of 18 New England, designed by Minneapolis's own Scott Peterson and published by Oof. All Aboard Ooh. Game. Oh, oh, whiplash. I just oh, yeah? got whiplash, Jake. Oh, yeah. From going from uh, that light little uh, Blue Lagoon to this game (laughs) and going from something you're pretty mediocre on to something I believe you like a lot because you like 18 New England, correct? Oh, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) that was a pretty hard whiplash right there, but we're good. We're good. Now that you're okay, That will pick me back up again. Right. So recently in my life, I've started to play 18XX with a Sunday group here locally, which includes Scott. 
um, who's the designer of this game because he lives so close and it's nice. It's an early Sunday morning game and we're able to play a game and just kind of get it done by early part of the day. So you still have the rest of the day to enjoy, which I really, really enjoy. And we've been playing 18 New England over and over again. And I believe in the last about month, I have played 18 New England seven times ish. We have one online game going right now. So it might be around six, whether or not you include that. But I, I really enjoy it. So 18 New England, for those people who don't know, it's an 18xx game, which is the weird financial based train games that Mark and I are such big fans of. And it is kind of a spinoff of 1861-67, but not really. You can definitely see how that influenced it. It's very similar where you start a bunch of smaller miners, and those miners can either join together or grow up into full 10-share companies. But there's about three things in this game that I really, really, really like, and it works out to just make this game something that I personally very much enjoy. The first thing being IPO shares. So in 1861 and 67, there's this concept of incremental capitalization. So whenever Mark as an investor is going to buy a share of his own company, all that capital for exchange of whatever the market price is, let's say it's $200, will go into the company. And so what this ends up happening is in a game like that, it becomes this huge snowball of if you can't catch up with someone and their company is valued at $200, all they need to do to really buy a train is sell two shares. And usually these games you can issue as well or some other way to, to get some sort of capital and not have someone else buy them. And what's neat about the IPO shares in New England is depending on what your IPO price is, which I will not explain, but it's a fixed value for the entire game. That's the only amount that you will actually get for capitalization for when you sell a share. But it works both ways. For one, if Mark's in that same situation where he's valued at $200 or his company is and he buys a share for himself, he's only going to get the IPO value. So that helps curtail the snowballing of if you buy four shares and you hang on it for a while and the company's making a whole bunch of money and then down the line when uh, you buy the last two shares you can put in enough money to buy a big old crazy e-train it helps curtail that but also the otherwise if you issue a bunch of shares and now your share value is only at 60 dollars, but your ipo value is 110 when you buy a 60 dollar share actually 110 dollars goes into the company which I think is really sweet. It's one of my favorite things I've seen done with incremental capitalization. It certainly is a, uh, I'd call it a rubber banding effect to the game, right? Because if you're kind of a crappy company, you can use that rubber band to issue shares for, get money put into the company over their value and kind of pull you back into the game. And on the flip side, if you're running out in front of it, that rubber band is sort of stretching you back towards the middle because you can't issue for a whole bunch of money. So it does the job of keeping everybody in a pack. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it rubber bands as much as it just kind of solves some of the issues that I find in those games. So a lot of the things that can happen in a lot of incremental capitalization games is cross investing late game can be really helpful or mid to late game. And so if you position your company to look really good and someone will shove $180 worth of capital into your company, you can really run away with the game because, again, you're just getting $180 of capital that they probably wouldn't give to you otherwise. And that share would have made, I don't know, 20 bucks per share, let's say, or 20 to 40 bucks per share over the next couple of ORs. So you get a lot of capital now, which is fun. But what this ends up doing is it's not like trying to pitch yourself as a market being like, oh, Mark, please buy my company. It's not as damaging to the game space for me to invest mid to late game in someone else's company because they're only going to get IPO price from it. Right, right. The other thing I do like about it is if your company is really cheap and people keep on buying your shares from the IPO, maybe you're getting all that money too quickly and then you're kind of asked to other things. And I, I could talk on this game too long and I'll, I'll stop it here so this doesn't become 
the 18 New England podcast, but I think it's a really interesting thing and I hope it's a mechanism that's used in other games as well. Yeah. The other thing I really like about this one is there's two kind of ease of gameplay things that are done in them. And the first one being every company starts with a two train after the first stock round, which I love. I hate that first round where you don't have a train and all you do is all their stock values go down one and then everyone buys a train and then they run the next one with a really boring stock round in between. This one, every every company starts starts with a train. It's it just saves six minutes and it's not that big of a deal, but it just makes it feel less clunky and it feels a little bit more polished. But the other thing I love is in end games in other games, if you have two big permanent trains, you have to count two separate routes. But in this game, what you do is you just double whatever single route that you have with the lowest number. So if you have a five permanent train and an eight permanent train, you double your best five run. That's it. There's not this too crazy calculation and these different ways of everybody laying a whole bunch of track towards endgame. Once you set up your run and you got a good six run and it's not really going to get hyper optimized, you're chilling and you're just going to double it. It's so much faster. It makes the end couple of ORs go by so much faster. I don't know what to think about that, Jake. I go back and forth on it. I mean, I absolutely see the pros and cons that you're talking about there about uh, speeding up the game and so forth. On the flip side, though, I feel like sometimes it removes something like it kind of makes tokens. I don't know if you have one good route, right? You can now just run roughshod over everybody through that one good route. And now I can double it by getting another train. Yeah, it it makes the token war a lot harder. But also, here's going to be my counterpoint. Compare the size of 18 New England's map to the size of 1861. Yeah, the Russian map is massive. It's huge. I mean, there's certain ways where you're not even touching anybody else. Because they're just so geographically far from you and your miners are not over there. There's no way that you're going to touch Odessa if you're up in like the northwest portion of the map. Sure. So I think this what's end up doing is, yeah, you're interacting more and it makes tokens really brutal, which is, again, another thing I like about this game. But it makes it so you're interacting more quickly versus, yeah, there's a bigger map and I'm going to be able to run two runs, but I'm not going to touch until the very end of the game. Well, I think in games where you actually have to run two different runs, there's a legitimate decision on whether it makes financial sense to buy that second train and run kind of a, do I try to force buy this? Do I try to get the second train in there? Do I do a bunch of shuffling so that I could maybe run kind of a crappy second route? Boy, I don't know. Is that going to pay back? Whereas in this game, it's an automatic. You buy the second train because you're going to double your income. You're you're always going to make money, which is really what I like about this game. And before I move on from the tokens, the tokens are really brutal in this game, but not in the way you'd think. The token war is not like 1846, where if you don't put a token in that spot, you're you're over. It matters a lot more for converting and merging potential versus endgame runs. Like, let's say, for example, you have a company in Boston in this game and you're trying to do a big, long eight run in the game. You're going to put together a good eight run. How good your eight run is going to matter because you can. There's so many tile upgrades and all the tiles are very permissive. You can really get anywhere. You can go around whatever token spots they put. But let's say that you're playing an online game with the meanest person in the world, uh, uh, the devil incarnate himself, Eric Nell. And he puts a token (laughs) and keeps on blocking off your spot so you can't convert your two companies and merge them together. Um, That can really be 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 a rain on your parade there. So screw you, Eric. Uh, Thank you for doing that to me. You have ruined my day. You are really painted in the corner in our current game. I had to laugh yeah. at that tokening. Which which is which is what's really cool is because end game, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be able to get around the whole area and probably make a decent run either up north area or head down to New York, that kind of area. But it's fun that he's able to do that in this game, but it's not going to completely cut my hamstrings out from underneath me. 
Yeah, and I had to lay a not my favorite token lay on the planet in this last round because I realized that it was going to be way too easy for two of the new majors to come in and literally cut my west half off from my east half and and leave me with a couple of runs that go nowhere. And right. so but that's the I had thing. to preserve my run. Give it one or two ORs and you're able to upgrade around from there. I mean, you're probably going to have two or three major companies in this game, plus a handful of miners. Mm. There's a lot of tiles in a small, small area. You're literally every company. Not in this case. I would I, I would not have been able to get around that oh. one. I, I looked at that and it, I don't think I would have been able to get out of that. Gotcha. All right. Well, there are some choke points and I think that matters. But yeah. the real thing that all of these games does and kind of holistically what I like about 18 New England is it becomes a game of timing. Everything is mattering on when you do things at a certain time. So, for example, managing trains is about timing to make sure you issue and everything to make sure you get to buy the right train at the right time. You have to know how the trains are going to play out and how every company is going to form and everything along those lines so you can put everything in the right place at the right time. It doesn't matter if you have the best run in the world and you have $1,000 left over in your company at the end and you're already done with two eights. You mismanage that company. You just have to handle all of the companies and things that you've been presented the right way so you can win this game, which is what I like about it. And it's it's really fun. It's not about knowing what combinations of privates work really well. It's managing timing of the game. To that point, there are very few things in this game that are objectively bad. I mean, there's a couple of miners, which wouldn't be your first choice, but situationally could be a nice boost for a merge partner for another miner. Right. And you and if you add them in later and float them high and shove them into something, they can do totally yeah. fine. Yeah. And that's exactly the move I did at Klopcon last weekend, where I bought the worst miner in the game and was able to just merge that with the company just south of it. And bam, I pumped in a whole bunch of money and away we went. And I didn't win, but I put a pretty good fight up. You did. I really like this one. It's definitely added to my top tier of 18xx games. For me personally, this is what I like in 18xx games. It's it really yeah. hits all the high notes for me. And you'll recall we did actually talk about this one a few episodes ago immediately after going to mid Sumcon and and uh, playing it for the first couple of times and one of the criticisms we had at the time was that it ran a little long. Boy, that has not been my experience the past few plays of it. Yeah, I think we just didn't push the trains fast enough early game. Because everyone's going to have two miners. And if you cross by end of OR 1.2, so the second OR in the first set, everyone's going to buy that hanging two, couple of two trains, and then buy a three train. Because two trains are not that bad in this game. It seems that three trains are really good and four trains are okay, but three trains are really good. So trying to set up yourself to get a three train is, is helpful. Yeah. Since that point, and then also at the end game, it might have been because we were playing a rule wrong, but it really hasn't dragged. What I think it actually was, was I think we all over aggressively issued shares. And so our companies kind of had no bullets left in the chamber. And so we were kind of stuck. Oh, and so endgame came low. Yeah. So it just took a long time because nobody could really nobody could really drum up the cash to do anything interesting. Right. And this game does do the thing that I really love where you get uh, four figure runs, which always feels wonderful. I ran for a thousand dollars in a game and that just <laughs> feels wonderful. A hundred dollars per share. It's a wonderful feeling. <laughs> that is pretty fun. So anyway, that's something I think you'll hear us uh, talk about again in the future. We've, we will probably talk about this at longer length, but in a different format. Let's just leave it at that. There we go. All right. That's enough on that. You also played some trains this week, I believe. Right, Mark? I did get a chance. Well, it was actually a couple of weeks ago. So I have a friend who shall remain unnamed, JJ, who has been accused of being allergic to trains for as long as I've known him. I think I've suggested Union Pacific back in the day, and he said, I hate train games. And so therefore, I've never even attempted to bring him up on board with this. A couple of weeks ago, he randomly said, hey, I've been hearing you talking about 18xx on the moguls, and it sounds interesting. Can you teach me? 
after I picked myself up off the floor, wow. I said, well, I, uh, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> and, but then, okay. So game night is five. I think we had five players that night and it was a set where I was the only one with any, but any experience. Uh, William had played 18 CZ before an 18 Lilliput, but JJ and Eric had never played either. So had, had never played anything. So they were taken from ground zero. Actually, I think Eric played 1889 once, maybe. We ultimately landed on 1846 as our teaching game, which isn't always my favorite teaching beginner game because there's some wonky in that game that isn't the same as other 18xx games. But, you know, I needed a game that wasn't super long, somewhat easy to teach and played well at five. And 1846 was certainly the thing on my shelf that fit that missive the best. As with most beginner 18xx games, it was long. I think we finally called it at uh, 1.30 in the morning as my 13-year-old son just couldn't keep his eyes open anymore. Right. We were well into the brown trains at that, into the permanence at that point. And it was pretty clear that it was done to two people who were going to win that one. And ultimately, I think everybody enjoyed it quite a bit. So, But the newbies, did they like it? Do you think JJ is still train phobic? Uh, no, I actually think JJ enjoyed it quite a bit. He definitely afterwards said, wow, I can see why people get so into this. And I can absolutely see why it's so interesting. Eric's enjoyment tends to be a little more tightly tied to how he does in the game. And I think uh, Eric thought he was going to win and really wanted to see it out and see it played out to that point. And I think he was a little upset that we didn't finish it out because he thought he could have won. And yeah, he's not wrong. Right. So I have a weird comparison to make. You know, when you're in a dream and you're somehow in a fight in a dream and you throw a punch, but Mm -hmm. your muscles are made of glue and they just can't move quickly. And you feel like you're just like throwing your fists are made of feathers. Is that how slow? I don't have fight dreams, Jake. I got to tell you. Oh, weird. Okay. Well, I guess you have a a softer life than me. Um, (laughs) Doesn't 1846 kind of feel like that when you play with newbies? It's like, how is this even the same game that we play online with five people that know how to play the game? (laughs) I mean, you're racing to brown trains in like the the second set of ORs, you know? I mean, like it's, they're done all the way to the second set of ORs. I mean, buying a two train in that game is just bad because it's going to die. So I think I shared a picture of that online. And uh, I think the comment that was made was, boy, that was awful gentle tokening. <laughs> yeah, because 1846 can get absolutely brutal, especially with, with where you're controlling all those Midwestern cities with the tokens. You can really cut somebody's legs out from under them. Well, that's awesome. I'm happy to hear we have more train folk, especially local. I'm always down to play with them. Two thumbs up, 1846 by Tom Lehman, published by GMT Games, one of the cheaper 18xx titles that you can buy right off the shelf. It is downright affordable. I think it's like 40 bucks, but it's been a while since I bought my copy. Oh, I think I paid less than that when I got mine. Oh, geez, that's awesome. Buy it. It's good. The one thing I will say is it's not the easiest 18xx game when it comes to strategy. Um, It kind of really opens up once you realize how much you can push the game and really make it a race. Anywho, last week, I also got a chance to play some uh, fun Heading West-themed games. About six months ago, won a BGG giveaway on uh, a couple of games from Tasty Minstrel Games. And one of them that was included in this is Gold West by J. Alex Kevern. And I finally pulled it off the shelf, and I was sitting, and I think it was a, a rainy day, and I said to Anna, are you down to learn rules to a game? I haven't even read it. I haven't punched anything. She said, you know what? That sounds fine. And so we made some coffee and just kind of sat there and learned a little game and it was it was a fun little afternoon. Gold West is a themed game based on being different miners heading to I think they 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 invented a region but you're you're heading out west to mine for gold and whoever has the most gold and victory points wins at the end of the game. It's a pretty forgettable euro game. 
It had a pretty interesting Mancala-style action selection, somewhat similar to a game that we both like, Crusaders Thy Will Be Done by the same publishing company. But it was a little bit less interesting. Functionally, what you're doing is you have four different tiers of goods, and whenever you get goods each turn, which you will, you put them in one of the tiers. And then you get to Mancala grab any one of the tiers, leaving one at the end, and whatever gets pushed off of the board is what you actually get to interact with and use as your resources for that turn. I thought it was fun. The production was wonderful. It also had a very interesting town. So there's the shared town space. And what you can do on your turn is you can actually XYZ graph and put one of your discs on one of the power bonuses of this town that's assembled randomly at the start of the game. And it it it, it makes it kind of fun, but ultimately it was kind of a boring, normal, midweight euro, lightweight euro kind of experience. I don't think I'm going to get rid of it, but it's definitely not something I'm jonesing to play all the time. So I don't know if you'll actually see it or not, Mark. Well, you know, if it does come out, uh, I'd certainly give it a whirl. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was an unoffensive midweight euro. I'd give it a two B on the mogul scale. Production was good. It's just I'm I'm kind of not as interested by those games as I used to be. Well, and I don't know. Old West isn't a theme that normally makes me just go woo. Woo. Gold. Wow. Okay. Okay. Put trains on there, man, and then we're all the way in. That's, of course, how it's going to work. And for the viewer, for the listeners, we're not actually into trains. We're just really like 18xx games. Uh, I, I, I'm not interested in trains from a thematic standpoint, just in from what the games offer. So anyway, that is Gold West by J. Alex Kevern. It was a totally fine, unassuming, nice little Euro game. What else did you get a chance to play last week, Mark? You said trains, didn't you? I most certainly did. We're not going to talk about 18xx this time. We're going to talk about Age of Steam by Martin Wallace, published by Eagle Griffin, the current version that we have soon to be replaced by a lovely new one that's being delivered by Kickstarter, hopefully. This one, of course, has the uh, little choo-choo trains instead of the cubes, and, you know, you can send your arguments elsewhere on that one. But we, up until recently, had only played this game one time under not great conditions, so both of us walked away with not a good opinion or experience on what the game was actually like. I know you got a chance to play it at MogulsCon, and I've been dying for a chance to play it again. I did. So I did. And it was kind of the same thing where there was a position to which maybe we had a good group for it. And then we had more people join in. And I love playing games with these people, but I don't think it was something I was in their wheelhouse. And so it was one of those games where it was a learning game. And I just still haven't experienced Age of Steam with just a group of people that know how to play it. I haven't experienced the game for all it can be, as I should probably say. This was, I think, our first chance to actually experience this. But I do have a funny story about Age of Steam. So Mark and I have recently, behind the scenes, been doing pub meeple stuff to figure out what our top XYZ amount of games is. And I see this game pop up relatively high on Mark's list of top XYZ amount of games. Spoiler alert for the next episode. I know. I know. We're ruining it. But I had no idea because... When we played at Clopcon, you functionally shut down. You would have left the table if you were allowed to. And it was amazing that for a game that it seemed like you absolutely did not enjoy your play of, I'm surprised you liked it so much. Did not enjoy the play of and did not enjoy the game are two different things. Fair. You were in a bad position pretty much from the second round. (laughs) And it was pretty much unwrestle outable. Yeah. So I played it one other time a year ago. And sort of forgot that the, uh, you know, cute, fluffy, white, fuzzy polar bear maybe doesn't want to cuddle, shall we say? 
<laughs> yeah, it does not want to. It'll bite your face off. <laughs> I I went up and I, I sat down. I went, oh, this is cute. Oh, this is great. Let's play Age of Steam. I'm going to go up and give that cute, fuzzy white polar bear a nice little hug and cuddle and yeah, proceeded to get my gullet clawed out. That'll do it. So I don't know that I had an appreciation for how savage this game is up until that point and made some uh, game ending dumb mistakes in rounds one or two, did not understand what I was doing and um, was absolutely so far behind the debt curve in the entire rest of the game that I could not do anything. I couldn't like literally all I could do is issue shares just to stay afloat uh, indefinitely. And it was it was a pretty painful thing. But just because I screwed up and put myself into a corner of hopelessness, if anything, that underlined what a great game it really is, that it has that sharp of fangs that you can screw up that bad. And it gave me actually a better appreciation for what a brilliant game it is, if, as contrary as that sounds. So that's why I rated it so high is it's one of those that I, I learned a lot through my uh, torturous mistakes and uh, gained an additional appreciation for it. Yeah, I, I was so happy to finally play that because it was my first time that wasn't a someone is probably playing a game that they weren't really Age of Steam was not the game they were trying to play when they sat down at the table is the first two plays of how this game went. And I finally sat down with the group and I'm like, heck yeah, I'm with the people. No one's going to check out of this one. They know how to do it. Everybody knows. We taught it really quick. Tyler picks up games like Snap. It's so fast. And we just started playing. And then all of a sudden, about two rounds in, you're on your phone and you're just leaning back. You're like, I'm dead. This, there's no there's no point to <laughs> me continuing this game. Stick a fork in me. I am done. So it's I'm happy to hear you like it so much. I am a huge fan of this game as well, which I did not think I would be sitting where we are now in the past where with our first bad couple of plays. I didn't think I'd like it so much here. So. Yeah. And I'm likewise, I'm happy to see that you like it because I've been championing this game for a year and have just kind of gotten maybe out of you. (laughs) So I'm I'm happy to see that you've come around on it. But a little bit of background, too. We sort of blew right into that one. But this is wildly different than 18 XX games and that, yeah, there's money and yeah, there's train routes. But how the mechanism works is entirely different. This is one where you're actually building routes and delivering goods around cubes. But The economy in it is crazily tight and your decisions every step of the way matter all (laughs) for the entire rest of the game. And I'm very happy to have another game in my quiver that is uh, financial, but operates on a completely different mechanism and also is super well fan supported with a gazillion different maps to play with it. Agreed. I cannot wait for our Kickstarter to actually arrive here. I keep on checking the Kickstarter page about every single day. Don't know why. I just keep on clicking on it. I'm so happy that I actually did go against my gut intuition back in the day and kickstart this one because I cannot wait to have all of the new maps and actually have a pretty edition and all that stuff. You know what I want to play next? The moon. The moon map. Yeah, you actually have it. We should do that. We just That's supposed to be great. You should put Age of Steam into your October game bag. I probably should. Yeah. I'm telling you, though, you really should. All right. Well, anyway, yep. that's Age of Steam by Martin Wallace, our edition by Eagle Griffin Games. What would you give it on the mogul scale, bud? That is a 3D. The rules are easily teachable. Man, it may even be a 3E strategy wise. It's a heavy 3D. I think there's a decent argument to be made that it's a 2D. Mm, you're probably you may you, you may not be wrong on that one. Maybe even a 2.5. It's not that hard, especially with a good paste up. When we played at Moguls Con, our good friends, Corey and Barb had an awesome paste up and it was so easy to do everything. Yeah, uh, it's like I said, it's the rules are deceptively simple. It's like, hey, hey, look at this cute little fuzzy polar bear here that just wants to cuddle. 
and it just stabs you right in the back. Well, that's Age of Steam. <laughs> Promise you, that's the end of our train talking for this episode. All right. So the next game I'm going to talk about here has absolutely nothing to do with trains and probably has the cutest little theme of any game I've ever played. So as a little bit of weird background, Anne and I got in a conversation recently about having kids someday, which was scary for me and my 26-year-old brain. And I was somehow the concept of board games came up and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to let the kids play my games. I mean, they're my little things. I don't want them to get all grubby and kid covered and all that stuff. And Anna was like, no, they're going to play your games. And so she was wrong. Um, I don't, I will not allow them. They'll be under lock and key protected <laughs> from all of the little, uh, the play stuff. Cause these are my things. So <laughs> that being said, Jake, that's a free pass to buy up every Haba game on the shelf. Well, great transition because I played <laughs> a Haba game for the first time. So at MogulsCon, it was way late in the night. We had just burned our brains on playing trains and a whole bunch of heavy games all, all day. And so we were trying to play something that's quick. And so Josh pulls out Rhino Hero by Scott Frisco and Steve Schrump from Haba Games, which Haba Games is a German board game manufacturer. All their games come in little cute yellow boxes and they say Haba on it. They're clearly for kids. And I think Rhino Hero is for like kid kids, like sub four. And there was all a grown, <laughs> grown adults playing this game and we had so much fun with it. So Rhino Hero all you're doing on your turn is you're playing a card, which will indicate what the person next has to do for their card that they have to play. But when you play a card, you're playing that card onto this rickety little structure that you're building in the center of the table. And so when I put my card on, I am functionally making a house of cards and I'm putting the next roof on with at least one, but most likely two different wall folded cards that you'll put on there as well. And then you'll put your roof on top of it. And then the person next to you has to match their pattern and put on their walls to build the tower up higher and higher. You keep on going until the structure falls over inevitably, which will happen. And then there's some certain amount of points on it. I don't quite know. We weren't playing with that. It's just once it's over, everyone points and laughs at Jake because he knocked it over. But it was so fun. And the reason why it's called Rhino Hero is on some cards, you have to take this little meeple rhino that's a that's a superhero and bring them up to the level to which you have just had to play your walls and a new roof on. And oh, my God, we had so much fun. I am so excited to have kids now just to go through these Haba games if they're all as good as Rhino Hero is. Have you played this one, Mark? I have not, actually. My board game interest and my child-rearing years did not line up terribly well. I actually right. more or less kind of didn't do board games. We often talk about the dark years where we missed a bunch of games. Those were my small kid ages, and now my kids are old enough that they can play pretty much any game. And so I sort of missed the whole Hobbit thing completely. Gotcha. Well, we had such a fun time with this, and I'm going to buy a copy at some point in time and really play it because it is a fun little dexterity game that's not hard to play, pretty simple rules-wise. And it was just a really fun little filler of wasting five, ten minutes while you're waiting to have something else happen. It was a bucket of fun. I do remember at uh, MogulsCon uh, flipping my snooty little Lahav playing nose up at you guys playing that silly little kids game and thinking, huh, they kind of look like they're having more fun than we are. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> we had so much fun. It, it's, it's just that. It's not really the best game in the world. It's just a fun activity, but it felt better than those dexterity games where it's like you're interacting with these really small little things like Tokyo Highway, which I am awful at. But this one, it was just like, you're doing the same thing. It's the same core idea of you're building something that's probably going to explode, but it just feels really tight and gamey and you're moving these bigger things and it's more about like balancing it. And it's, ugh, it was really fun. I'm a big fan. That was Rhino Hero by Haba Games. 
And if this isn't a 1A, I do not know what is. Yeah, no point arguing that fact. That's a 1A all day long. Absolutely. So I think that's been enough game, seeing as we've almost got a full hour on it. Why don't we move on to our topic of the week here, Mark? Sounds great. So this is actually a weird offshoot on last week's topic about interactivity. And you'll see where that's going in a minute here. So bear with me, Jake. And the genesis of this conversation has to do with a few comments I've heard recently after pulling out and playing a Euro game, asking around the table, hey, what'd y'all think of that game? And having people say, hmm, I don't know. It was pretty tactical. I don't know if it was my favorite. Hmm. And that kind of got me to thinking that is tactical bad? Like, I don't necessarily think a tactical is bad, but I've heard a number of people say that they didn't really care for a game that much because it was tactical. And so today's topic is, is tactical actually a pejorative in Euro games? Hmm. So a little bit of background on that one. I'm not talking about games that are designed to be tactical games. So we're going to just ixnay off any conversations about either dudes on a map games or mini games because those are designed to be tactical. And, you know, if you get into playing something like that, you sort of have to have an appreciation for that type of game. What I'm talking about, I'm talking about games that have uh, cubes that you're pushing around or exchanging or things that don't look like dudes on a map. And are they tactical? And is that a bad thing? Jake, do you have any pre-thoughts on this one? Yeah, because it's interesting because I don't think I carry the weight of, oh, that game was really tactical. And what we mean by tactical is every turn you kind of have to reassess the board state and your plans from last turn, you could have closed your eyes and and uh, and not really seen anything that happened from last turn. And this turn's completely new and you have to react to the new stimulus right now versus a more strategic game where you're like, OK, well, I'm going to do this from the get go. And there are minor adjustments that happen. There has to be in every game. But you kind of have an overarching strategy from it versus kind of reacting to the board state. I do have some thoughts on these because I like tactical games. I like uh, I definitely like dudes on a map games more than you do. And I I like some games. My main complaint with games is when I perceive it to be tactical and that undoes some of the overarching strategy that the designer, I believe, was trying to put in the game. So, for example, a good example of this one, and I'm probably getting ahead of ourselves right now, but just for me personally, I think it helps define it, is Lisboa with the, I don't know the terms for it, but it's the way to get those victory point tiles. And isn't there a way to wipe those five from the board? Or there's a way that those entire five will change by the time you come back to it, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, a couple examples of that would be the church tiles, which you're constantly kind of looping around and different ones pop up some after you go past them. Also to the, I think they call them the decrees. The which, decrees are the ones I'm trying to describe where they're, it's like a saw, separate off-board location that has all of the, the different decrees. There's like eight cards in a tableau up there that you can select from. Yeah, and they, the, I remember the tableau wiping a lot and it got to a point where I thought, okay, well, I'm planning to all this and now I'm going to go to the the decree spot. Okay, well, I don't even know it was here before. I had made no thoughts about what was actually going to be here because when I got there, it's going to be a brand new set of cards and I'm going to need to buy something that's good for me at this point in time. And that felt really silly because I remember it was like a 70 point ish game, I think, last time I played and like 10 or 12 of those points was from a last turn, just like, oh, I guess I'll see what's going on over here. And I was able to get something that worked really well for my strategy. And I find that kind of instance of tacticality negative to a grand strategic game of the whole overarching strategy of the game where you can just go there and hell, a sixth of your points came from the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of areas that actually the board state changes a lot, whether it's commodity price or what buildings are available or what decrees are out there. 
there's a lot of reacting to stuff on that one. So I don't know that I agreed with you at the time, but now in hindsight, I think I agree with your assessment of Lisboa and that there are a lot of tactical decisions that have to be made when your turn comes up and, and reacting to that. And so many of those decrees are very situational in their utility. Like, you know, a card comes up where you get points for every building in Blue Street. Well, awesome. If you had a lot of buildings in Blue Street, you know, giddy up. That was great. And it's not like you were fishing for that. It's right. not like you were fishing for that card. Like, oh, I know I'm going to have that at the end of the game. Because there's 70 you know, of them. Keep on drawing. Right. There's a bajillion. And you may not even see that one. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you can just straight up do an action and like spend a dollar and wipe the entire market. Right. I, you know, it's been a while since we played that. That actually the game you're talking about is the last time I played it. But yes, I do recall that there is a way that you can just wipe it and reset that. And the other thing, too, is the, there are ways that you can buy additional ones, which is probably what you're thinking of, where you go to get one and then you spend your little uh, extra tokens there and, and get two or three of them or get an extra one, right. I think. And so there is actually a decent amount of turnover on that board. So, yeah, that's my complaint about tacticality. And I'm sorry to sideline your conversation. No, that's, that's I think it kind of explains what I dislike in games when I say it's tactical. That is actually a very interesting take on the tacticality of a game and where it can be a downside to the experience. I think another one is that if you've got a game where the board state changes dramatically from turn to turn, it can really cause some AP problems because you can't really make any meaningful decisions until it comes around to you. And if you're someone that's bad about quickly assessing a game state and reacting to that, it could really make a game bog down because you can't plan ahead. You have to just stop and go, okay. The world just changed since the last person went. What am I going to do? Honestly, that's a lot of my beef with uh, dudes on the map games is that things have changed around so much that all my best laid plans have come completely unwired. And now I got to figure out how to unscrew myself <laughs> to every single turn. I think right. I, I, I think AP issues can definitely be a problem with a game that is very tactical and requires you to make on the spot decisions when it comes time to your turn. Some other games that I brought up, I brought this up actually and pulled out and just said, hey, what are some examples of some games that present as Euros, but actually are pretty tactical in their nature? The number one game that was brought up to me, and this is so right, is Five Tribes, because that board changes a lot between when it comes around to you because of everybody putting their little meeples down on there and you have to run around and pick them up. And that is a game that also is notorious for inducing AP that you just can't play at high player counts and with really AP prone players for that reason. Ethnos is another one that was brought up as being pretty tactical in that, yeah, when it's your turn, you kind of have to worry about how many tokens are on each territory and what game, what cards are available in the market. It's pretty tough to decide until it gets to be your turn what to do. And finally, Twa. As much as I love the game, yeah, you really do actually on your turn have to decide what you're going to do because whatever dice might be for sale, you might have a great plan for that six of yours that's sitting in your district. And the guy before you bought it. So now you have to go shopping for dice that you really don't have the money for and you can't do the action that you were planning on. So now you have to uh, make lemonade out of lemons and uh, try to do something interesting with the things that you have available to you. Jake, do you have any uh, thoughts on those or any other ideas of games no. that are super tactical? Aside from auction games, which I know we're going to talk about later, I guess the question for me is, is this a bad thing? I don't think it is personally. I mean, if you're a person that likes to have a long term, I'm going to keep put my eye on the prize and look forward into the future and say, I am going to do a mining strategy. And as long as nobody gets in my way, I'm going to keep my blinders on and I'm going to just move forward. I'm going to do mining, 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 and then maybe pivot a little bit if I start encountering some resistance. But I'm still going to just go, I'm going to execute my strategy as best I can. 
a perfect example of this was a game that I played last Saturday night. I played Scythe with a group with a six player group who was very experienced. And it actually came down at the very end to a very tight score um, between JJ and Eric. And Eric had the weirdest game of Scythe that I had ever seen. He only was on two hexes the entire game. He was literally locked in his home base. He never moved out of there until the very end. And he came really, really close to winning because he maxed out everything else. He maxed out all the little upgrades. He maxed out all the enlistment things on there. He maxed out all the things that didn't involve combat or territory control. And he came within a whisper of winning. Wow. The reason this came up is because I moved in on his territory. I actually crossed the river into his home base and took his encounter out from underneath him. He could have walked in and smacked me because I was functionally at his base. There was almost no penalty for him to do that. And he kept saying, don't be ADD. Keep focused. Don't be ADD. Don't go for the shiny. (laughs) Just keep stay with your plan. Stay with your plan. So he was obviously laser beamed in on a particular strategy that he was doing and was not going to react to what I was doing. Ultimately, he finished with 4x the number of points I did. So <laughs> there you go. He clearly, he clearly had the right idea. Right, right. So yeah, I guess, I guess the question is, I'm fine with a very tactical game. Some other games that I think are really tactical is Pax Premier. I mean, it has to be very tactical because you never oh, know what 100%. people are going to do. And it's so hyper interactive that depending on what you and your other partners do, that changes completely your plan for your turn. But that doesn't undo the grand strategy and this grand narrative of what's actually going on in the game. I think my only issue is when I feel as if tacticality in a game ruins some of the grand strategic planning in the game, if that makes sense. I think maybe that's a uh, that's a function of uh, maybe random events that are overpowered that are you know too swingy random events. Like if you've got some big game busting thing that can just randomly happen that nobody could see coming and undoes everything you did. Certainly, that's a bad example of tactical planning that isn't fun. Right. But it's if it's in the realm of possibilities, I know that woodcutter spot in Caverna is going to keep on getting bigger and bigger. And once it gets to eight, I should probably just take it because it's eight wood and then I'm not going to have to worry about wood for another six turns or something. You know, like it's part of the game is reacting to a board state. And if it's just something where, okay, well, I'm going to do this. It just becomes an optimization puzzle. And I don't think you're really playing the other people on the board. You're just really seeing who had the best plan from the get go. Yeah, I think maybe one of the most extreme versions of this game is the game Dominant Species, a game that both of us sort of have in its complicated relationship with for a lot of those reasons. Maybe now we can finally quantify why is that it's very swingy in terms of some of the events that can happen. The board state changes super dramatically. It's very prone to AP. You really have to read the board state when it's your turn. But then all of a sudden, hey, this card comes up, which completely swings the game and undoes everything you did. Right. I don't know if I have an it's complicated relationship with dominant species. I just dislike it. You have an it's complicated relationship with dominant species. <laughs> which is funny because of the two of us, I should be the one that hates it. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I don't necessarily, and I'm going to try to make a better thing. I'm not going to use tactical as a pejorative, especially for Euro games. I think war games and other kind of styles of games is a different thing, but. I don't think it's necessarily bad. I just don't want it. You have to react to the board state of the game. I just don't want it to get in the way of some grander efficiency just because I can all of a sudden whip out 20 points because I got two good tiles for me at the very end of Lisboa after a two hour game. Interestingly, I think some of our very favorite games are extremely tactical. You you hinted at this before, Jake, that auction games are almost by definition 100% tactical because you have to react to the current thing that's going on and it's impossible to plan for the results. Right. And it, it's all about knowing what people's strategies 
R for each thing, right? So if you're auctioning out for Green Cube and you're the owner of Green, why are they doing that? What's the point of that? Are they doing this because they want to place it in this place or are they doing it because they want to make sure that you're poor for the next auction? Are they? Are you sitting on a bunch of cash? You have to figure out what people's motivations are beyond their tactical decisions and try to suss out their strategy to win that game and especially in auction games. Yeah. Estates is a great example of that too. Are you auctioning that piece because you actually want it or are you just trying to raise money from me? Are you trying to, right. uh, where are you going to put it? Are you getting that to do it proactively to increase a property of yours? Or are you going to do it to hose somebody else in their plans? There's a lot of different ways to play that. And it's unknowable until you see what the person that wins it is going to do with it. Right. And I, I love the estates for that reason, because it got to a couple of points where someone would put something up for auction and the person to my before me would say way too much money, thinking that I'm for sure going to bid on it. And then I look at the board state and it's like, well, he's going to put it exactly where I want it to go anyways. Why am I wasting my money to have him go there? And then he gets around and everybody passes and this guy pays too much money and he puts it exactly where I want it to go. And I'm like, yeah. Of course you want to do it, but that's the game here. You're reacting to what's happening each turn and seeing how that fits in with everybody's grand strategy, I think. So speaking of grand strategies, let me show my hand here and go with my grand strategy here. It came to me that this is actually part of the unifying theory of interactivity that ultimately I, I th actually think saying something is tactical is also saying something is highly interactive because I don't know that you can have one without the other because the reason that you're having to make a tactical decision is because somebody did something that affected your game state dramatically and now you need to react to it directly. So I'm sort of forwarding the, uh, the theory that tactical games are inherently high in interactivity and I don't know that I could think of a counterexample to that at the moment, but I haven't been able to think of one, so... Thus far, so good. I think that makes sense. The only thing I'd push back on is I think there still can be games that are very interactive where it's more than you just come over and kick my sandcastle. Yeah. You know, I mean, there could be games like, let's say, Caverna. We just recently both played that. And each one of the Caverna action spaces get more and more resources. That's not interactivity based on the fact of... Well, no one came over and kicked my sandcastle, but when the ruby spot or the woodcutter spot fill up with enough resources, it kind of just makes sense to go there and get those resources. But I still think that's definitely a tactical decision because you don't know if other people are going to take it before you. But I wouldn't say that that is interactive based, but I would say that that game is very tactical because the board state will always change depending on whether or not people did or didn't do something. And they're not just coming over and knocking over your sandcastle. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Like, I don't think that you're saying that any games that are tactical are interactive and strategic games are not, because that's definitely not true. I just think that there tends to be a, a higher correlation there, maybe. And also, I think there's very few games that are purely one way or purely the other. I mean, most games are Agreed. on a spectrum somewhere between both. I mean, I think the best games have a, have doses of both in them. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. And I'm, I think it's a good takeaway because, I mean, by definition, the tactical games have to be more interactive because you have to wait to see what's going to happen on your turn because the board state's going to change because people are messing up stuff. It's a feature, not a bug. Well, in going shoegazing and navel gazing for one moment here, if I were going to uh, self-examine my own personal game skills, I'm probably better at reading a current board state than I am at uh, executing a grand strategic plan. So, you know, a lot of these games I listed as being Euro games that have a tactical element are actually some of my favorite games. Absolutely. Anyway, just wanted to uh, riff on that one for a few minutes and just talk about tactical. And is that a pejorative? I don't think it is. And so therefore, I won't take it as such. And as always, if you have any thoughts on our subject matter, feel free to reach out to us in the one of myriad ways that you can reach us by email, by BGG, by BGG Guild, by Twitter, by Instagram. We're on all these things. Reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Certainly. 
Jake, it's been a riot. Always a pleasure, Mark. Hope you have a good rest of your day. I certainly will. Yourself as well, my friend. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.